this is a, a quote from, from you, actually, that it isn't the job of the playwright to become the voice of the nation. Sure, completely, yeah. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. You agree uh, with yourself? Yeah, I agree with myself. <laughs> Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. My name is Dan Delamotte, and I am so excited to be finally joined by the playwright Luke Barnes. Luke, thank you for coming on Off Book today. Lovely to be here. <laughs> is that your podcast voice? Uh, yes. Well, we've well, yeah. changed it now. What, really? Yeah. Oh, never what mind. was that before? Well, you just went really posh just then. Hello. Great, yeah. Hello. Are you going to keep that for consistency? What's better for you? Um, go natural. Go okay. natural. Yeah. Sand. <laughs> <laughs> Sand. It's always sort of uh, Luke. Sort. Yeah. Um, welcome. Thank you for coming. Great to be um, here. I want to know if you as a child if, if writing was something that interested you or excited you or did you sort of grow up and looked at the world around you and think I need to write all this down and turn it into bits of theatre <laughs> no, I want to be an actor I was an actor first I went to drama school I was an actor about five years I never worked in theatre just worked in film and TV um, but I I I never was never really interested in writing or really plays really till I went to left drama school I was really lucky in my like last year of school we did this thing where they commissioned like a bunch of writers to come and write your final year piece and just by chance, we had um, Vicky Jones from Dry Right, who does Fleabag and, you know, Killing Eve and all that, commissioned Phoebe Waterbridge, James Graham, Joel Horwood, um, Phil Potter, uh, Patrick Marber, all those, like, these, like, awesome writers. And they happen to open this, like, weird scene, or weird scene, but, like, this Nabokov group, like, Nabokov Theatre Company, used to do this thing called the, 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 the Village Underground, called, like, the Nabokov Arts Club. I went to go and see that. And suddenly I saw these, like, plays that were just, like, designed for non-traditional theatre spaces that were fun and anarchic and about, like, my experiences. Like, fucking hell, this, like, feels quite accessible to me. And at the back of that, I went away after I stopped that thing and wrote um, Chapel Street, which was made for that mindset, really, which is supposed to be about, like, people in a form for people like me with my experiences made for them in a way I think I think, I think we would enjoy together. That's what I started doing it. But it was all because of that Vicky Jones, Jirai Wright, Nabokov. So why did you make that transition from actor to writer? Well, the main thing was that I I did wrote that play and really enjoyed it, but also I found acting incredibly anxiety-inducing. I mean, for my own... This is for me. I can only speak for me. I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me, but like, I found it a really hard way to live life, being like um, being unable to produce things, like do something a day's work and say this is tangible to what I want to achieve. I find it really hard trying to... like stay in shape and stay like all that stuff found that really hard i found the idea of like waiting for the phone to ring hard just basically found the whole everything about that from my own perspective and my like mental well-being so i started writing i never really intended on doing it as a career really but did chapel street and bottleneck which my first two plays and i just really luckily people kept asking me to do stuff and still trying to do it today but um it all comes from that really i mean like my idea was always to make things I think would be a fun way to talk about big things. And I think I'm still trying still trying to do that, I think. Trying to. Yeah. And how influential has your home city been in in your career? Massively mean Liverpool Liverpool I think I was actually this is really, really wanky, but fuck it, let's go for it anyways. Like thinking a lot about a moment about like where like moral values come from or like ethical values come from in like a post religious society. And like I think for me Liverpool's taught me a lot about what is Good, a good way to live your life and like from a, from like a moral and artistic perspective everything comes from that city I mean like morally I think I learned from like a quite early age that 
the act of making art is like should be selfless. It should be for the betterment of a community. I learned that from about the football club, like from Hillsbury, you know, like about doing something that's bigger than yourself. But everything comes from Bill Shankly. <laughs> <laughs> so Bill Shankly did this amazing thing when Liverpool lost the ethical final. He called a town meeting and he brought all the city into St George's Hall and he got the players to come and stand on the plinth. And bear in mind, they lost it. And he went, I did this just to remind them it's their responsibility to work for you. And if they don't believe me, they'll believe me now. And I was like, okay, so why do we apply it to art? It's like, actually, we live in a really weird time when we think that playwrights are demigods and we think we should, like, directors are geniuses. Like, actually, that's completely so far removed from what, like, a state-subsidized theatrical economy should be. You know, like, actually, we're all here to serve communities and to serve people. That's what the whole point of this is. All we're doing is trying to ask questions in a way that is fun and entertaining. Second thing um, is, like about language and playfulness. So Bill Shankly again did this speech and he was talking about like, he meant big men use big words that only a small percentage of the world understand. Um, he was like, never call a man avaricious, I'd call him fucking greedy. <laughs> and I was like, it's great. So like the way we talk about things. Wait, that's a Bill Shankly quote? Yeah, he didn't say fucking no. Okay. I think it's made up. You think okay. bloody greedy. But like, uh, so like, um, then we talk about like doing things for the greater good in a form and a tone I think like is populist. Um, to achieve uh, betterment of society. Everything in my mindset comes from probably Bill Shankly. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think. So it's not by accident then that there's a lot of social commentary in your work. It seems like it's very deliberately placed there in the, in the heart of, of, the, of the writing that you make. Yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, what's the point in doing any of this? I mean, like, if we're going to be famous or earn money, there's other ways to achieve the betterment range studio theatre, <laughs> realistically. So, like, um, why... If you want to make radical work, like work that's genuinely important and populist, it by definition has to like hold the status quo to account, right? So everything should be trying to like hold an establishment to an account for the betterment of a community in a fun way that people engage with. And that's kind of my perspective. I'm very aware that there are people who disagree with me and want to make slightly more cerebral work. That's cool, whatever they want to do. But like for me, that's what I want to do is try and hold status quo to account via fun, you know, or via like a good night out. Yeah, yet you say, um, this is a, a quote from, from you, actually, that it isn't the job of the playwright to become the voice of the nation. Sure, completely, yeah. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. You agree uh, with yourself? Yeah, <laughs> I agree with myself. <laughs> I mean, like, what does that mean? I mean, like, that's a, that comes from a David Hare quote. He, he said that, like, the job of the role call was always to like, find a player who was the voice of the nation and stage them. And, like, we can't really speak for people we don't engage with. So, like, we make work... So, like, we make work at the Jumper Factory, right, which we made here. The point of that pro I've never been, never been in prison, I've been a prisoner. I've been to prison to make that show. But, like, the role of the playwright in that context is to try and facilitate them speaking, right? Well, what was that project, the Jumper Factory? So, sorry, made here in the Young Vic Theatre. Yeah. at home in Manchester a few months, a few weeks ago. I made it in H.P. Wandsworth the first time. The job is to try and uh, facilitate um, prisoners to make their perspective and their viewpoint via a piece of theatre, right? Um, so the same applies in anything you do. You know, the playwright's job is to facilitate communities that have conversations with themselves. That's it. We're not trying to speak and solve the nation's problems via art, by sitting up bedroom and sorting it out. That's not our job because the nature of it is too slow anyway. You know, by the time you get a play written and produced, it's eight months, minimum a year down the line. So it can never be too responsive. So really, you think that you think that um, it would make more sense for playwrights such as yourself to to 
leave some time before responding to the issues of the day, say, be that Brexit, be that Trump, be that the, the refugee crisis, be that whatever it might, yeah, might but be. But also, it's funny, the eternal question in that, the eternal question is, isn't like, what is, you know, like, why do people flee, you know, in refugee crisis is a bigger question than like, what is happening right now in Calais? Do you know what I mean? I think we've got to find that version of the question, the eternal question in it, because we can't be, we can't physically respond quickly enough to things like what's happening in Brexit today, it's changing tomorrow. We've got to find the eternal question, why are we at rest? Why are we divided? Why are we divided nation? We look at ourselves historically, look at ourselves socially. I think that's more useful for like the playwright, trying to find the eternal question, the bigger question in it, and like capture a moment rather than capture a specific second, capture energy or something. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's really hard to like phrase that, but I think, I think I'm right in saying that. Well, there's another quote I want to, to throw at you, which is... Um, oh, my God. Anger has been normalised. Do you know who said that? That was me again, was it? It was you, yeah. <laughs> and um, well, like, what's, what's your contribution uh, to, to that, then? Because you're, you're, you're saying that anger has been normalised, and mm. I really agree with that. And how do we denormalise that, then? How do we make people... Um, not just go through the motions of anger or, or or injustice, but but really try and get to the root nub of, of why the, why these things exist. How do we do that? I mean, like, what is it about? I think, like, it's got to be about exposure to art, right? Because the more we gauge with art, the more we see other people's perspectives, the more we feel empathetically. The big thing about art is, of course, you know, Twitter or essays are useful because you read arguments, but with art you feel it. And I guess that's what art is useful for us, that we can, we can understand and learn perspectives and social, political, historical climate. We can feel it empathetically. And once we can f- feel it, I guess it becomes in us and it starts being a gesture of a thing. I don't know. I think something about that is useful. Are you, are you able to engage with people that have a different opinion to you? <laughs> uh, yeah, wholeheartedly. Do you follow people on Twitter that are... Loads of people on Twitter. That are conservative, for instance. Yeah, yeah. loads of them. Yeah. I don't agree with, I don't agree with many of them. I, but like I can see where they're coming from. I think the thing about Tories is I think they're not bad people. I think they just have a different belief system of how they want the world to be ran. And they, I think some of them do think it's about social betterment for everyone, despite it being a completely different structural system. But we have to understand that like, not many people are fundamentally bad. Some people may be misguided, some people may be ignorant or naive. But, you know, some people try, most, pe- most people I think are trying their best to do their jobs, exist in the world well. But some are doing it wrong because, you know, that's the nature of things. But I think that it's really important that we start humanizing people not like us because the minute we just say bad is the minute there's no dialogue. You don't grow because you're just reinforcing your your viewpoint, your perspective. Um, they don't grow. They don't change because they're just doing the same thing. There's just divides everywhere. We need to start empathetically listening and having conversations and growing, I think. And that's not necessarily... Um, easy because you get a lot of people you fundamentally you really disagree with or think people have like nasty viewpoints but I think we have to start doing that so what what do you feel when you go on a demo and you see a group of pro-Brexit for instance um, men predominantly men uh, shouting uh, and then you see a group of uh, pro-European Union uh, counter-protesters also shouting and, and there's this sort of this shouting match between the two groups uh, and and there's, there's, there is zero dialogue there uh-huh. uh, there is zero um, contrition there is zero kind of um, leave or or, uh, or give do you feel disheartened do you feel, uh, I feel angry do I you feel, feel angry because like I know that that particular argument is not because of 
an underlying feeling of hatred for that other group of people. The thing about Brexit, specifically, specifically that example, is you've got to realise this isn't a ground up revolution. This is a top down issue. No one was going, I hate my world, my life. It's because of the EU. Everyone, a lot of people, a lot of people in just like the North were going like something has failed my community. I don't know what it is. And someone went, by the way, it's because of the EU. And it's because of all the people who don't look like you. A lot of people are going like, fuck yeah, I've been let down for generations. I've seen my grandfather's into dismantle, I've seen my parents be unemployed, I've seen me find life hard, and suddenly this is, you know, a channel thing. This is a very small minority. But um, I can see why people would vote leave. I could see why I've met these people, I can see they make rational arguments for it. They're not necessarily bad people. Um, and also, I'm a Remain voter. Cuff me. <laughs> like, I voted for Remain, I can see why people want to stay in mainly for my reason was that I couldn't imagine renegotiating workers' rights under a Tory regime. I feel that I think it's a fucking absolute atrocity that we would ever trust the Tory government to reimagine a society in favour of the vulnerable or in favour of the precarious worker. Or, or any, you know, I think that's ridiculous. So I can see both sides of this. Um, but So I, I feel angry at a government that stokes that, that lets down people and then stokes hatred amongst it rather than at either of those people at and, this point. And then does that anger mobilise you into writing? Uh, does that? I think so. Stuff I'm doing at the minute actually does come from that, I think. Especially I'm doing another project with Middle Child and Hull. Definitely comes from that, I think. The question is, like, how can we be... Why don't... Why... How have we lost track of what is good? And why have we lost track of how to be kind? You know, because I think, like, if we go back to basics and ask the fundamental questions, like, what is a good citizen? suddenly a lot of these qualms and divisionism goes away. Um, and I just, yeah, I think it definitely does. I think it definitely, how can it not? You know, because like, it's interesting, even if I don't intellectualize that, it definitely exists in me, you know? Because I don't understand, Brexit is in everyone at this point in time. It's seeped into every fiber of society, into everyone's subconscious, you know? And I think um, a lot of the divisionism we're seeing is directly because of that. Um, and it's come at a really interesting time of change of the power balance anyway so it stoked that fire it's made that more aggressive than it needs to be I think it's a really interesting time and I think yeah I think that's making everything much worse Luke you strike me as someone who is a champion of um, marginalised groups within society and I'm just thinking about this your um, your, your writing in um, in the taking part uh, work that you've done at the Young Vic and, and describing your writing you say that this is not a celebration of writing this is a celebration of human resilience uh -huh. and the practice of using theatre as an amplifier for giving a voice to those unable to speak I'd go a little bit further than uh -huh. that and, um, and sort of um, Bolton and Arundhati Roy quote which is that there is no such thing as the voiceless there are only those deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard it's a great quote it is isn't it and who's that Arundhati Roy says that Sound. Yeah. Um, why does that get you out of bed in the morning then? Why, why, why do you want to give a platform to these groups in society? Well, the first thing for me is about that idea of human resilience, right? I think, like, I think we're in real danger of having let down... I'm talking specifically here about, like, northern, northern working-class communities as an example, but specifically for this example. We've let down of the way we talk about these communities. And if we keep insisting on narratives of oppression, of the oppressed being depressed and being victims of society and falling through the gaps, we will never empower people to do anything or to love their world or themselves. I think we need to celebrate the resilience against adversity. You know, I think the best, the most inspiring story for me again about Liverpool, right, is Anne Williams, who ran the Hillsborough campaign, you know, working class woman, turned over the whole world, but she spearheaded it 25 years. It took her to um, hold a government, the entire press, 
the police force to account for covering up their own failings for killing 96 people at Hillsborough, right? So you spare that on her own. Cost her a life, a relationship, everything, right? For me, being from Liverpool, granted I'm middle class, white guy, but you know, whatever, the people not too far away from me who keep getting fed out of Liverpool specifically as being downbeat, depressed, you know, gritty, poor. Uh, what story do you rather hear about your hometown? You know, the story about the, this like guy who's fallen out of luck with the world and taking drugs and killed his wife or whatever, which is not far away from stuff like Boys in the Black stuff and Jim McGovern's run, which is a really good writer, but it's not for now. Or celebrate the resilience of Anne Williams. Which one of those inspires you to make your world better? For me, it's always about celebrating human resilience. Always. And in terms of like voicing the voiceless, like the honest real answer about that question is that like, look, my perspective on the world is oversaturated. Like we've had, I think there are plenty of other better educated, more eloquent middle class white guys speaking about shit on a higher platform than me. Thank you. <laughs> so the question is then, if I have a skill set, how can I be useful? Right? And I genuinely think that people like me have to say the ego out of their work at this point. Well, forever, fucking not even for now, forever. And just say, look, how can I use my skill set to allow other people to speak? Because we can do that and I can be useful. The most, use, most useless version of me is me sitting in my office being like, race. <laughs> I am going to today tackle this thing. What I could do is say like, you know, if a group approached me and were like, do you want to somehow help us facilitate a show? I can do that. What I can't do is try and solve the world's problems on my own. I think that's fucking stupid. So I think like we need to, as a theatrical culture at this point in time, take ego out of it, take ego out of the um, out of the formula and say, how are we useful? How is this perspective and me useful in bettering the society? And I hate to say it, but like, I think a lot of that means taking a step back and saying, this isn't about me becoming, achieving my goals now. This is about me serving other people, communities, whatever, and see ourselves as craftspeople rather than like, Rockstar. Well, an ally knows when mm. to stand up, but also when to sit down, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you, you first did that at the Young Vic with the, the Men in Blue project. What did. was that? Men in Blue project was a show we made three or four years ago. Now. Um, it was with a group of guys who were service users in the NHS for schizophrenia and psychosis. And it was the same process. Like we met these guys, and we were making a show that. Um, responded to Blue Orange by Joe Pennell. And the idea was, look, I don't know anything about this world. I know nothing about this world. I'm just going to walk into this room and see what they want to talk about. Like, what would be a useful conversation for them to have with a public? And again, it came down to the issue of, like, being humanised, highlighting flaws in the structural systems that they exist in, and dispelling stereotypes. It's like, okay, how can I facilitate that? And actually, can just by making a play about it and taking it you know, internally at the Young Vic and outside at Latitude. Um, and that's the job. I mean, that's what I kind of worry. I've done stuff like that with NYT before. Um, and uh, that's, I, that's that's kind of it, you know. But it's not about me being an amazing playwright. It's about me saying, how can I specifically do something in this place and time that allows this conversation to happen, you know. And then yeah. after, after Men in Blue was Fable. Fable, yeah, which was um, a project, film we made with second generation um, asylum seekers and refugees uh, across London, New York and Cape Town. But I didn't go to Cape Town, which was fine. I couldn't afford it and they were, I thought it was pointless. So I was like, fair. <laughs> um, it's the same thing again. It's the exact same process. It's like, how can we dispel the narrative of taking refuge of 
taking asylum? How can we dispel that? What's your truth? How can we stage it, or in that case, film it in a engaging way so that people learn from it and grow from it? That's really it. And latterly, the jumper factory, right? Which mm-hmm. is the exact same process. Working with prisoners yeah. in Wandsworth Prison. Worth. HMP Wandsworth to get yeah. this official title. Yeah, and then again, outside of it, we did it in the Young Vic and Home and Bristol Vic and a little a tour around that. Um, but what's interesting about that is like, so we did it twice. In the prison, it had a very different gesture to outside of it. In the prison, it was about making something. So when we spoke to them, they were like, we feel like we're playing masculine. We feel like we're hiding up the fact we're scared. None of us having honest conversations, like we can do that. So we made the show. It was effectively about that balance of like being scared and existing in a prison society, playing hard, protecting yourself, but really being scared of life passing by outside and like, poor mental health. So the first instance to try and get the conversation in the prison, they were like, once about that, so we did that in the hope that that conversation happened in prison. On the outside, it was about just humanizing those people because they said the biggest issue those prisoners faced was coming out of prison and everyone being like, oh, you committed a crime, can't work here, can't rent this house, you can't do this, so what do you do? You fall back in a cycle. The reoffending rates are astonishingly high. So we did it outside in the hope of like um, trying to reimagine them as humans who have taken their time, done their service, and allowed to participate back into society again. I don't know if that's successful, but that was the objective. And with those three projects, working with um, people experiencing mental ill health, working with uh, recently arrived refugee groups, and working with um, s- serving prisoners, did you ever come across any resistance? And that these people were saying, "Well, hang on a second, who who are you to tell my story?" You know. Uh, I think I think I think I, I've luckily always worked with, like really good directors, like just know the bird, Josh, Madikaluja, and um, Finn. Don't hurt that, right? They're really good people at saying, look, if you don't want to do this, you don't have to come next week. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, like, I, I, I phrase it in that sentence as like, I'm here to write in a script what you want to say. Anything you don't want in here, it's not going in. Anything anyone else has a problem in the room, it's not going in. This is all, we're all agreeing on doing this together. So the process is about like, I go away and write two pages and say, this is what we're going to talk about. This is the story. This is the form. And we chat about it for a week. I go away change it, come back, we chat again, go away, change it, come back. Then I come back with the script, same thing, same things. So by the time we finished it, it's a group thing, you know, and there's nothing in that, in any of those plays that I've made up. It's all real. It's all real. And, and why was it called The Jumper Factory? Um, well, in the play, uh, he lies to his girlfriend's son who's going to visit him that's a jumper factory, not prison, because he doesn't want him to know he's been in prison. Yeah. And talking about the jumper factory, you mentioned masculinity, and I know that toxic masculinity is something that interests you as as yeah, as an lot. evil in society, I suppose. And yeah. uh, uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what we can do to combat it, and and how you've tackled it in your in your writing. Um, yeah, I think for the last two years, it's pretty much all I've written about. Because I think I genuinely do think that like the vast majority of social evils come from this idea that men feel the need to try and dominate. Um, or be seen to be dominated, or seen to be loud, and seen to be funny, seen to be strong. I mean, like, the repercussions of that are, effectively, that men can't admit being scared, can't admit being sad. They let things well up, and they obviously manifest in various ways. But also the need to, like, being seen to dominate, the need to be sexually or professionally, obviously has implications on women, which means high abuse of not only, like, sex abuse, but domestic violence, general sort of suppression um, in the workplace. Um, and I just think that like the minute men let go of that and um, allow to see themselves as humans, not men, and see women as humans, not women, then hopefully we can have a conversation about how to live. <laughs> but until that's gone, I don't think we're going to make much progress in terms of like equality. Bear in mind, like London's a very good place for it, generally speaking. 
Um, the rest of the world, I think, is still pretty rigid in the rest of the UK. In my places I work in Hull, Liverpool, Newcastle, generally, I think, is still quite divided in terms of its genders. That answer suggests to me that you are somebody who is a realist rather than a optimist or, or, a, or a pessimist. What camp do you fall into? I heard this great quote. Someone said, like, I think I have no faith in the individual human, but I have faith in humans in general. <laughs> or the other way around. What would you say? <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I think people are fundamentally good. I just think some people need to have a conversation before they can realise what they're doing wrong. I think a lot of people just don't take into consideration they might be upsetting other people in the way they behave and speak, you know. And I think, like, the process of, like, an enlightenment is just to ha- have that conversation through art. I don't think anyone's doing things with the intention of making life harder for other people. I think they are definitely doing that. But I think a lot of people just haven't actually learnt much about other people's perspectives on their own immediate bubble. And I think they, yeah, I think that's the first thing. So what difference do you notice between Liverpool and London? Because I would have assumed that they're quite similar cities. <laughs> well, in the sense that they're both yeah. kind of le- left-wing, they're both metropolitans, they're both they're both very uh, diverse and representative of, of wider populations, aren't they? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Um, from a theatre perspective or political or, or day-to-day Everything. perspective, yeah. day-to-day, I think, like, the big, my big thing in Liverpool is that I observe gender-wise very strong very strong lines generally it's a very clear idea of what women be like and a very clear idea of what men be like or should be like there's also like a queer scene which is fucking amazing but that's just a different thing happening somewhere else but generally speaking on the street day today very clear lines about that it is a left city it is a staunchly remain city but our reasons are very clear because 2008 rebuilt the city european culture you know they did a lot not rebuilding just in terms of infrastructure but culturally it's much smaller it's much less diverse than london i'd say very white city. There is obviously the fastest growing demographic in Liverpool is young black men, but it is still effectively, I would say, culturally very white, I think. I think it's fair to say for Hull as well, but Liverpool, yeah. Um, but it's left leaning, it's accept. It's, Liverpool's interesting because, like, there's this thing called Scouse exceptionalism, but I think it's like Liverpool's interesting because it celebrates itself for so many reasons, but it looks very, finds it very hard to look at itself skeptically or like criticize itself, you know. Um, I think. There's a lot about Liverpool's boss, but then you even ignores the fact it's built on slave money, for example. But I love it. I think it's the, I think it's the best city in the world, obviously. But and you yeah. can't imagine moving to London, say? Oh, I've just left. I left a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> I love London. I, I, I love London. I think London's an amazing city. It's just that I can never afford to live the life I want here. That's what it boils down to. It priced me out, and uh, I just think that um, what I needed and what I wanted were at Kilter. Like, I know that I need stability. I know that I need, like, if I'm going to make work of any use it's got to be have headspace to do it I know I need my family friends work in a place that inspires me London inspires me in a different way but it's not really about me it's more me being a subject to a whole world of shit that I learned from well one thing that clearly mm. does inspire you is football yeah and uh, you've written two plays about football is that right well, The Saints and Bottleneck well, how come you wrote a play about Southampton Football Club that seems kind of uh, it seems a bit weird to me well I wrote Bottleneck and then st- Sam Hodges came to see it yeah. and he'd just taken to the theatre and I think someone told me he was wanting to make a play about Matt Letizia, so I was like I'm just going really? to write him off the cuff and say I'm a massive Matt Letizia fan <laughs> which I generally am he's, he's a genius so I wrote to him and he was like come and talk about it so I did and then we ended up making that play that was awesome that was a really big lesson for me that I mean I was too young to be doing a play that big I think at that time so I don't think I found it the easiest but I think the gesture of it and what we made was so important in my development because like that play effectively is just about trying to find a populous way for a community to engage with it itself 
So the play effectively is about the history of the football club. It's got Francis Benali and Matt Letizia in it. Um, we did it in like a big pop-up theatre in the city centre, but it's really about what austerity means to that city, you know, what that is to grow up in, you know, uh, as a work-class person in an affluent city. Um, did Matt Letizia come to see it? Yeah, he came to see it. Yeah, did you well, We had all the old boys network came. Yeah. Yeah, the whole old boys Southampton football club came to see it. It was amazing. Yeah. He was in it. He had a little part. Oh, wow. So you've ever seen like, uh, you've ever seen Looking for Eric, that Ken Loach film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Oops. we did that. Yeah. So Francis, Francis Benali and Matt Letizia came out of the wall and were like, Amazing. What are you doing there? He was like, what? He goes, you just do this. Is that your Malatissia impression? It is, yeah. What are you doing? I think I've, I've presented this podcast for a couple of years and I had lots of different people in this room. I think this is the first time we've spoken about Matt Letizia. <laughs> <laughs> he's a really, I think he's a, a cultural, a, a person of cultural significance. Because he's a great example, actually, of like my general sort of take on theatre. How? Excuse me, how? <laughs> Matt Letizia moves to Southampton, right? He's from Guernsey, I think. So he came to Southampton and he could have went anywhere, but he was like, my wife likes her, so I'm going to stay Okay. <laughs> like so they weren't the best club. They were he saved relegation three times. He refused to leave because he was like, "I'm happy here. I want to commit to this place. My family like it, so we're just going to do it." And I was like, "That's such a rare mentality in like life these days. Someone of that ability." And he's like, "I'm not going to go and sign for Tottenham because why would I? I'm happy." Well, you know? Matt Letizia, if you're listening, please do come and join us. <laughs> and what about Bottleneck? Bottleneck, and uh, that was my second play. And like, I think that just came from my. Well, I'm fascinated by. Anne Williams, as I said before. My first version of that play was effectively the story of Anne Williams, and then I sent to people, and they were like, you can't just have a journalist talk to Anne Williams. And I was like, that's not a play. And I was like, you're right. So how did you dramatise that? I dramatised it with that boy going there. Because think of me, that play is about like the human cost of it. We know so much about the justice campaign and about the boycott of the sun and about the ongoing criminal trials. But for me, I was like, I'm going to make something just this just says, look, it's just a little boy went there and died like that. That's the real cost of it on like a month, on like a base level just children going to a football match with their family and coming back dead and then a group of people trying to cover it up to save their own asses that's what's happened you know and for me that's horrific yeah. what I think is so clever about your writing Luke and what the, the nuance that you have is that you on the surface there's you know the topic of this play and then underneath that is all of the underlying political social contextual um stories underneath that so with with for instance the saints but also with um all we ever wanted was everything you know this is this is gig theater which was a, a new venture for you and then at the same time it's a damning critique of tony blair and new labor yeah. uh how did you manage to kind of fit all that in well that was a really good process for me because again that was that wasn't my idea we did that so the commission came whole Catholic culture were like make a show about millennials for millennials that was all we got and I was like what the fuck does that mean so I was like so we spent a week in a room with people from whole our age just chatting about stuff what they thought was interesting how they felt um, what their like cultural life performance reference points were and the thing came back everyone was saying the same thing they were all like I feel like I've let myself down I'm not good enough and I'm scared and I'm worried that everyone else thinks I'm shit and I was like that feels very true to me my experience in life and what the people I knew at the time's experience and I was like why do we feel like that and then we started thinking about like how we got here politically and it's like actually coming off the back born into Thatcher you can our parents have a mentality these kids are born and can do anything they like they're like this is the special ones we have Blair telling these kids do anything you want anything you want to go and do it come out of Blair into Brown and then the financial crash and you're like actually getting nothing but you've still got this mentality of your dreams are yours to take. Like actually, we live walking around now in this. And then Cameron comes and he's like, oh, by the way, uh, austerity. And then Brexit. So actually, you've just got like a lot of hope, disappointment, 
anxiety is the framework for our sort of generation. And I think that goes along with to explain why I felt like that. Mixed with like Blair, Cameron definitely Thatcher's neoliberalism anyway, which is like, go and get more stuff. The way you get as noticed in this community, which is what Thatcher said. It's like... Um, society. Society, sorry. So then like, you're, we're now living in ourselves, living in a world where we exist in this land of sort of failed dreams, being told to go and buy more and get more and be more handsome and be perfect and be a, have a family, whatever. Like all this like barrage of things you're supposed to have all of us sort of in different ways failing, looking at other people getting stuff and being like, why am I shit? And the play became about like trying to make a play that's the antidote to that, which is like, forget about it. Just try and enjoy yourself, like be who you are and just go and do your shit and just pursue your happiness. That was like the gesture of the play. And then we were like, talking about performance wise, we were like, well, we were like, everyone seems like no one likes going to the theater in Hull. Well, not no one, but like, it's not like, <laughs> people, you don't really get like a mass millennial audience for theater in Hull at the time. So we're like, we can't just make a straight play about that because who's going to f- fucking go to that? So then they were like, well, um, we all like gigs, we all like clubbing. So the way we framed it was we made this gig theatre play, which is three acts, explaining how we got there, how we deal with it, dramatised by different gender and class, sort of like swapping. And then we framed it, we, we programmed bands every night. So it's three act play, three bands a night, a DJ set at the end. And every night it's got different themes, like three rock bands, hip hop, drill, whatever, you know, every night and a big set at the end so we turn it into an event so the idea being that we make something that is for a generation about a generation in a mode they might consume it in um, and that was the process for that but again it's no different from the Jumper Factory the exact same process just that I happen to also be a part of that generation and this seems an exciting new venture for you correct me if I'm wrong you're writing a panto yes <laughs> Written the panto. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, I'm not. Um, we did it last year. We did it last year. We toured pubs last year in London. The idea with that project was like, how do we, in, how can we make something that people with, it wouldn't think fits for them or like can't afford to go to the theatre would engage with. So we did it in pubs around Manchester, Derby, London. And um, luckily, someone saw it in London to take it out commercially for this year. We're doing it in like a theatre this year. So what's the panto? It's Cinderella. I've heard of that one. Yeah. <laughs> Doing it with Not Too Tamed, which is it's awesome. They're they're an immersive theatre touring company. Mm-hmm. Um, I love. They made their show called Early Doors, which taught taught pubs for years, but it was at Edinburgh like a hit Edinburgh a few years ago. But um, yeah, so it starts in November twenty second till January the something. Amazing. Yeah. And writing gags, writing actual. Well, this is the best part about it. Cause yeah. I, I I wrote some gags, and then the company are really funny, so they just overwrote them all. <laughs> <laughs> so the structure's all mine. But the funny bits, sadly, are on yours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Luke, uh, while researching you uh, in preparation for this podcast, I couldn't help but notice that on your website it said that if I wanted a, a su- autographed signed <laughs> photo, that's, do what it's from. Do what it's from. Of of you, uh, I need to give you a. I need to provide it myself in a stamped dress envelope. So here I am in this podcast presenting Luke with a stamped dress envelope with my name and address on it and a picture of you there. And underneath the picture of oh you my says sign. Yeah, I've got a pen actually. Uh, So, what you're listening to is the sound of Luke Barnes signing his own face, uh, and that's because I read that on your website to do that, to ask you to do that. So, so here we go. So, if you can make it out to to eBay, please, that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) To eBay, there you are. Brilliant, amazing, fantastic. Um, Right, you know that's from. That's not like me trying to dig myself as a playwright. When I was an actor, I used to be famous. You weren't briefly. Uh, famous TV show, weren't you? I can't remember what it's called. What's it called? Um, Wheel, Wheel of Fortune. What's it called? Wheel of, Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> I was in Wheel of Fortune. 
Game of um, Game of Thrones. Game of Chance. Game of Thrones. Game of, yeah. Game of Thrones. Well, that's why that's there. Not that I like, expect much <laughs> random fan mail from studio theatre fans across the north of England. <laughs> Luke, yeah. it's an absolute pleasure and a joy to chat to you. You know how thank you highly so much. I think of you, and thank you so yeah. much for coming on off book today. I think it's fair to say that Daniel wrote the best joke of all time. <laughs> <laughs> he joked that Mary Bale was the voice of millennials because she epitomises YOLO. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is the, my favourite thing I've seen in theatre in the 20th century, 21st oh. century. Luke, I need you to write that down. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Ta. Thank you for listening to this episode of Off Book by the Young Vic. For more episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.